Fantasties by George MacDonald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Brad Powers. Chapter 10 From Eden's bowers the full fed rivers flow to guide the outcasts to the land of woe. Our earth one little toiling streamlet yields to guide the wanderers to the happy fields. After leaving this village, where I had rested for nearly a week, I traveled through a desert region of dry sand and glittering rocks, peopled principally by goblin fairies. When I first entered their domains, and, indeed, whenever I fell in with another tribe of them, they began mocking me with offered handfuls of gold and jewels, making hideous grimaces at me, and performing the most antic homage, as if they thought I expected reverence and meant to humor me like a maniac. But ever, as soon as one cast his eyes on the shadow behind me, he made a wry face, partly of pity, partly of contempt, and looked ashamed, as if he had been caught doing something inhuman. Then, throwing down his handful of gold, and ceasing all his grimaces, he stood aside to let me pass in peace, and made signs to his companions to do the like. I had no inclination to observe them much, for the shadow was in my heart as well as at my heels. I walked listlessly and almost hopelessly along, till I arrived one day at a small spring, which, bursting cool from the heart of a sun-heated rock, flowed somewhat southwards from the direction I had been taking. I drank of this spring and found myself wonderfully refreshed. A kind of love to the cheerful little stream arose in my heart. It was born in a desert, but it seemed to say to itself, I will flow and sing and lave my banks till I make my desert a paradise. I thought I could not do better than follow it and see what it made of it. So down with the stream I went, over rocky lands, burning with sunbeams. But the rivulet flowed not far before a few blades of grass appeared on its banks, and then, here and there, a stunted bush. Sometimes it disappeared altogether underground, and after I had wandered some distance, as near as I could guess, in the direction it seemed to take, I would suddenly hear it again, singing, sometimes far away to my right or left, amongst new rocks, over which it made new cataracts of watery melodies. The verdure on its branks increased as it flowed. Other streams joined it and at last, after many days' travel, I found myself, one gorgeous summer evening, resting by the side of a broad river, with a glorious horse-chestnut tree towering above me, and dropping its blossoms, milk-white and rosy-red, all about me. As I sat, a gush of joy sprang forth in my heart, and overflowed in my eyes. Through my tears, the whole landscape glimmered in such bewildering loveliness that I felt as if I were entering fairyland for the first time, and some loving hand were waiting to cool my head, and a loving word to warm my heart. Roses, wild roses everywhere! So plentiful were they, they not only perfumed the air, they seemed to dye it in a faint rose hue. The color floated abroad with the scent, and clomb, and spread, until the whole west blushed and glowed with the gathered incense of roses, and my heart fainted with longing in my bosom. Could I but see the spirit of the earth as I saw once the indwelling woman of the beech-tree, and my beauty of the pale marble, I should be content. Content! Oh, how gladly would I die of the light of her eyes! Yea, I would cease to be if that would bring me one word of love from the one mouth. The twilight sank around and enfolded me with sleep. I slept as I had not slept for months. 
I did not awake till late in the morning, when, refreshed in body and mind, I rose as from the death that wipes out the sadness of life, and then dies itself in the new morrow. Again I followed the stream, now climbing a steep rocky bank that hemmed it in, now wading through the long grasses and wild flowers in its path, now through meadows, and anon through woods that crowded down to the very lip of the water. At length in a nook of the river, gloomy with the weight of overhanging foliage, and still and deep as a soul in which the torrent eddies of pain have hollowed a great gulf, and then, subsiding in violence, have left it full of a motionless, fathomless sorrow, I saw a little boat lying. So still was the water here that the boat needed no fastening. It lay as if someone had just stepped ashore and would in a moment return. But as there were no signs of presence and no track through the thick bushes, and moreover, as I was in fairyland where one does very much as he pleases, I forced my way to the brink, stepped into the boat, pushed it, with the help of the tree branches, out into the stream, lay down in the bottom, and let my boat and me float whither the stream would carry us. I seemed to lose myself in the great flow of sky above me unbroken in its infinitude, except when, now and then, coming near the shore at a bend in the river, a tree would sweep its mighty head silently above mine, and glide away back into the past, never more to fling its shadow over me. I fell asleep in this cradle, in which Mother Nature was rocking her weary child. And while I slept, the sun slept not, but went round his arched way. When I awoke, he slept in the waters, and I went on my silent path beneath a round silvery moon. And a pale moon looked up from the floor of the great blue cave that lay in the abysmal silence beneath. Why are all reflections lovelier than what we call the reality? Not so grand or strong, it may be, but always lovelier. Fair as is the gliding sloop on the shining sea, the wavering, trembling, unresting sail below is fairer still. Yea, the reflecting ocean itself, reflected in the mirror, has a wondrousness about its waters that somewhat vanishes when I turn toward itself. All mirrors are magic mirrors. The commonest room is a room in a poem when I turn to the glass. And this reminds me, while I write, of a strange story which I read in the fairy palace, and of which I will try to make a feeble memorial in its place. In whatever way it may be accounted for, of one thing we may be sure, that this feeling is no cheat, for there is no cheating in nature and the simple unsought feelings of the soul. There must be a truth involved in it, that we may but in part lay hold of the meaning. Even the memories of past pain are beautiful, and past delights, though beheld only through clefts in the great clouds of sorrow, are lovely as fairyland. But how have I wandered into the deeper fairyland of the soul, while as yet I only float towards the fairy palace of fairyland? The moon, which is the lovelier memory or reflex of the down-gone sun, the joyous day seen in the faint mirror of the brooding night, had wrapped me away. I sat up in the boat. Gigantic forest trees were about me, through which, like a silver snake, twisted and twined the great river. The little waves, when I moved in the boat, heaved and fell with a plash as of molten silver, breaking the image of the moon into a thousand morsels, fusing again into one, as the ripples of laughter die into the still face of joy. The sleeping woods in undefined massiveness, the water that flowed in its sleep, and above all, the enchantress moon, which had cast them all with her pale eye, into the charmed slumber, sank into my soul, and I felt as if I had died in a dream and should never more awake. From this I was partly aroused by a glimmering of white that, 
through the trees on the left, vaguely crossed my vision as I gazed upwards. But the trees again hid the object, and at the moment some strange melodious bird took up its song, and sang, not an ordinary bird's song, with constant repetitions of the same melody, but what sounded like a continuous strain in which one thought was expressed, deepening in intensity as evolved in progress. It sounded like a welcome already overshadowed with a coming farewell. As in all sweetest music, a tinge of sadness was in every note. Nor do we know how much of the pleasures even of life we owe to the intermingled sorrows. Joy cannot unfold the deepest truths, although deepest truth must be deepest joy. Cometh white-robed sorrow, stooping and wan, and flingeth wide the doors she may not enter. Almost we linger with sorrow for very love. As the song concluded, the stream bore my little boat with a gentle sweep round a bend of the river, and lo, on a broad lawn which rose from the water's edge with a long green slope to a clear elevation from which the trees receded on all sides, stood a stately palace glimmering ghostly in the moonshine. It seemed to be built throughout of the whitest marble. There was no reflection of moonlight from windows. There seemed to be none. So there was no cold glitter. Only, as I said, a ghostly shimmer. Numberless shadows tempered the shine from column and balcony and tower. From everywhere galleries ran along the face of the buildings. Wings were extended in many directions, and numberless openings through which the moonbeams vanished into the interior, and which served both for doors and windows, had their separate balconies in front, communicating with the common gallery that rose on its own pillars. Of course I did not discover all this from the river and in the moonlight, but, though I was there for many days, I did not succeed in mastering the inner topography of the building, so extensive and complicated was it. Here I wished to land, but the boat had no oars on board. However, I found that a plank serving for a seat was unfastened, and with that I brought the boat to the bank and scrambled on shore. Deep, soft turf sank beneath my feet as I went up the ascent towards the palace. When I reached it, I saw that it stood on a great platform of marble with an ascent by broad stairs of the same all around it. Arrived on the platform, I found there was an extensive outlook over the forest which, however, was rather veiled than revealed by the moonlight. Entering by a wide gateway, but without gates, into an inner court, surrounded on all sides by great marble pillars supporting galleries above, I saw a large fountain of porphyry in the middle throwing up a lofty column of water, which fell, with a noise as of the fusion of all sweet sounds, into a basin beneath overflowing which it ran into a single channel towards the interior of the building. Although the moon was by this time so low in the west that not a ray of her light fell into the court over the height of the surrounding buildings, yet was the court lighted by a second reflex from the sun of other lands. For the top of the column of water, just as it spread to fall, caught the moonbeams, and like a great pale lamp hung high in the night air, through a dim memory of light, as it were, over the court below. This court was paved in diamonds of white and red marble. According to my custom since I entered Fairyland, of taking for a guide whatever I first found moving in any direction, I followed the stream from the basin of the fountain. It led me to a great open door, beneath the ascending steps of which it ran through a low arch and disappeared. Entering here, I found myself in a great hall, surrounded with white pillars and paved with black and white. This I could see by the moonlight, 
which, from the other side, streamed through open windows into the hall. Its height I could not distinctly see. As soon as I entered, I had the feeling so common to me in the woods that there were others there besides myself, though I could see no one, and heard no sound to indicate a presence. Since my visit to the Church of Darkness, my power of seeing the fairies of the higher orders had gradually diminished, until it had almost ceased, but I could frequently believe in their presence while unable to see them. Still, although I had company, and doubtless of a safe kind, it seemed rather dreary to spend the night in an empty marble hall, however beautiful, especially as the moon was near the going down and it would soon be dark. So I began at the place where I entered and walked round the hall, looking for some door or passage that might lead me to a more hospitable chamber. As I walked, as I walked, I was deliciously haunted with the feeling that behind some one of the seemingly innumerable pillars one who loved me was waiting for me. Then I thought she was following me from pillar to pillar as I went along. But no arms came out of the faint moonlight, and no sigh assured me of her presence. At length I came to an open corridor, into which I turned, notwithstanding that, in doing so, I left the light behind. Along this I walked with outstretched hands, groping my way, till, arriving at another corridor, which seemed to strike off at right angles to that in which I was, I saw at the end a faintly glimmering light, too pale even for moonshine, resembling rather a stray phosphorescence. However, where everything was white, a little light went a great way. So I walked on to the end, and a long corridor it was. When I came up to the light, I found that it proceeded from what looked like silver letters upon a door of ebony. And, to my surprise, even in the home of wonder itself, the letters formed the words, THE CHAMBER OF SIR ANADOS. Although I had as yet no right to the honors of a knight, I ventured to conclude that the chamber was indeed intended for me, and opening the door without hesitation, I entered. Any doubt as to whether I was right in doing so was soon dispelled. What to my dark eyes seemed a blaze of light burst upon me. A fire of large pieces of some sweet-scented wood, supported by dogs of silver, was burning on the hearth, and a bright lamp stood on a table in the midst of a plentiful meal, apparently awaiting my arrival. But what surprised me more than all was that the room was in every respect a copy of my own room, the room whence the little stream from my basin had led me into fairyland. There was the very carpet of grass and moss and daisies which I had myself designed, the curtains of pale blue silk that fell like a cataract over the windows, the old-fashioned bed with the chintz furniture on which I had slept from boyhood. Now I shall sleep, I said to myself. My shadow dares not come here. I sat down to the table and began to help myself to the good things before me with confidence. And now I found, as in many instances before, how true the fairy tales are. For I was waited on all the time of my meal by invisible hands. I had scarcely to do more than look towards anything I wanted when it was brought me, just as if it had come to me of itself. My glass was kept filled with the wine I had chosen, until I looked towards another bottle or decanter, when a fresh glass was substituted and the other wine supplied. When I had eaten and drank more heartily and joyfully than ever since I had entered Fairyland, the whole was removed by several attendants, of whom some were male and some female, as I thought I could distinguish from the way the dishes were lifted from the table, and the motion with which they were carried out of the room. As soon as they were all taken away, I heard a sound as of the shutting of a door, and knew that I was left alone. 
I sat long by the fire, meditating, and wondering how it would all end. And when at length, wearied with thinking, I betook myself to my own bed, it was half with a hope that, when I awoke in the morning, I should awake not only in my own room, but in my own castle also, and that I should walk out upon my own native soil, and find that fairyland was, after all, only a vision of the night. The sound of the falling waters of the fountain floated me into oblivion. End of chapter 10